0: Welcome everyone, you're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg.
1: So, Joshua took all the land, he took all the land. From Mount Halak and to the ascent to Seir, another mountain, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, up north, below Mount Hermon, which is even further in the north. He captured all their kings and he struck them down and killed them. And Joshua made war a long time with those kings. It was about a seven year campaign that they did against this northern confederacy.
0: Welcome to Truth in Christ Radio for today. The scripture says, Thus Joshua took all this land. This brings us to another section of the book of Joshua. The power of the Canaanite kings within the land had been crushed. And in this sense, Joshua took the whole land. Yet not every small town and village had been conquered and occupied. That was up to each individual tribe to do in the part of the land that was given to them. In the same sense, Jesus has already defeated the enemy and conquered the land, but he calls us into battle to gain what is ours. And now let's join Pastor Rob with today's study.
1: They had the same problem. Whenever they came across troubles from other nations, they would always run to Egypt for help. And what does Isaiah say? Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong but who do not look to the holy but who do not look to the holy one of Israel nor seek the lord it's a funny thing with us people is that when we get resources and we think that we can accomplish something in the flesh we're more apt to do it in the flesh or at least try to the first time rather than check with god It's one of the wonderful things about David. He wasn't a perfect man, but there were battles where he would do a certain thing. And the very next time, they were the Philistines, there was a passage in the Bible where the Philistines gathered in the same exact place. And and David didn't presume, based on what happened before, that they were going to do the same thing. He says, God, what do I do? Should I go up against them? And God says, yes, you shall. Well, what should I do? Are you going to deliver them into my hand? Surely I'm going to deliver them into your hand. What's the battle plan, God? Do we go out as we did before? And God says, no. Wait till you hear the thrushing in the, in the mulberry trees. And when that occurs, you ambush them. Different battle strategy by God. The battle goes well. And David is a hero. It's always better to trust in the Lord rather than horses and chariots and things that, are, that make sense to us in the natural. Sometimes the things that God would ask us to do defy some of those things. In our weakness, he is made perfect. In Israel, in its history, they had a penchant for going to Egypt for help. They always did that. It was sort of like the lucky charm in their pocket. When things got hard, they could run to the world for help. And that dishonors God, doesn't it? He wants to be your all in all. When you're going through something, go to him first. If you get sick, certainly go to the doctor. But, you know, sometimes, as long as you're not bleeding to death, sometimes it's good to just stop and say, Lord, would you heal me? I know I could go to the doctor. I could get the antibiotic. But would you go to him first? Go to him first. And then if you have to go to the doctor, there's no sin in that. But go to him first. He can do anything. Going on in verse 7, he says, So Joshua and all the people of Ork with him came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. So in this area, this, this, this lake Merom, Uh, in the northwest part uh, of of Galilee, uh, or northwest of Galilee, I, I should say. They came upon them suddenly. See, Joshua and Israel, they didn't wait for them to come out against them. The armies were just getting together. They were starting to hatch their battle plan against this nation of Israel. And Israel and Joshua didn't wait. They weren't going to sit back and wait for them to get their act together. They went out and hit them in the infancy of their strategic planning. In fact, some of the greatest military leaders in history have done this very same thing. Napoleon and Alexander the Great were notorious for doing this kind of strategy. They would hit the enemy when they least expected it. They would hit them suddenly. It would just be like a sudden onslaught, and that is the kind of thing that God led them to do. In verse 8, it says, And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon. And Sidon is in, in the very north of, of Israel. Sidon is actually north of Lake Hula. If you took the Jordan River going straight up and then go immediately west over to the Mediterranean Sea, right there on the coast is Sidon. Sidon. And so they would chase them to greater Sidon, to the brook, Misrifoth, which is uh, a lake that is, or, or I'm sorry, a, a location on the Mediterranean as well, uh, north of Sidon, and they attacked them until they left none of them, none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Boy, they learned that lesson, didn't they? In Ai or in Jericho. Instead of just um, being disobedient and taking the wedge of gold like Achan did and taking the Babylonian garment and the wedge of silver, you know, God tells them to do something. You need to hamstring their horses. I know you're going to see that as a valuable resource to you guys because, boy, you could really use it. Can, can you imagine that, that kind of power? I mean, they had the, if they had the horses and the chariots and God with them, I mean, they could take over the world. But God says it's not going to come down that way. Remember Gideon? When the enemy was coming against Gideon and his army, God had to whittle down the army to 300 guys. You're not going to get this by a lot of people, Gideon. You're going to get this by, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And boy, that's such a hard thing, because any one of us in the natural would choose to rather have a great large army rather than having it being whittled down to 300 men with pitchers and torches. You'd have to trust the Lord at that point and then he would get the glory at the end but joshua was faithful he was obedient he hamstrung their horses he burned their chariots verse 10 joshua turned back at that time and took hazor and struck it with the sword for hazor hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms hazor was a large town it was a large city and as they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them, there was left none breathing. And then he burned Hazor with fire. In fact, when we go to Israel, as we go up, to the, as we go up north to a, a military outpost up there and up, up around Lebanon, and we get up there in a military outpost, and you can actually see Syria. We, we literally stand on this big mountain hill-like thing. And you, you look down the hill, and there's Syria. And then you look straight ahead of you, and there's Mount Hermon. And you look over here, and you see Lebanon. And over here is the, the valley of, of Israel. And so, but on the way there, you pass by the ruins of this city that we're talking about tonight, Hazor. It's on a mound. They call it a tell. It means that several civilizations, several cities have been there, been destroyed. They build on top of them, they're destroyed at some point by enemies or whatever, and then they're destroyed. Then they're built again, and then they're destroyed. So there's all these layers of these different cities, and Hazor was one of those. Jericho is like that as well. So all the cities of those kings and all their their kings Joshua took, and he struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds... Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. It's kind of interesting. Hazor he burned, but the rest of me didn't. And maybe the reason is because when you when they inhabit these cities, the houses are already built for you. The vineyards are already done for you. Everything is done for you. It's like somebody left town and left everything for you. But only Hazor, because it was the capital of all those, all those towns. He burnt that one. But the rest of me left for the children of Israel, because it would be easier for them to go into a city that's already built. It's, the houses are already there. All they got to do is go in and sweep and take down the idols and put up their pots and pans. And pretty good deal, <laughs> right? Verse 16. So Joshua took all this land: the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the, the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel, and its lowlands. The Goshen that's mentioned here, when we think of Goshen, I think of Egypt, and right at the very uh, edge of the Mediterranean, right there where Goshen is, where Egypt is, is where the Israelites had camped. It's a very lush ground, great for cattle and those kinds of things. That's not the Goshen that's referred to here. Goshen is actually, um, many believe, is if you were looking at the Dead Sea, Right in the center of the Dead Sea, if you drew a line due west, this whole area in the middle of Israel would be, this. they believe, this land of Goshen, perhaps. But this is not the Goshen in Egypt by any means. So Joshua took all the land. He took all the land from Mount Halak and to the ascent to Seir, another mountain, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon up north, below Mount Hermon, which is even further in the north. He captured all their kings, and he struck them down and killed them. And Joshua made war a long time with those kings. It was about a seven-year campaign that they did against this northern confederacy. It took them seven years. This was a long, lengthy battle. Verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, which we read about in, uh, I believe it was in chapter 9. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them. See, God knew their hearts, and that's, a, a, again, a, a hard thing for us to understand. You know, it's not that God hardened their heart, but their heart was already in such a place of being hardened, just like Pharaoh's heart. There came a point where Pharaoh would harden his heart. It would say that in the Scripture. And then in the last couple of plagues, right before the last couple of plagues, it says, and then it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There came a point where God says, if that's the heart that you want, I'm going to let you have it. You can have your own heart, Pharaoh. I've tried so many times. You've hardened your heart. Now I'm just going to confirm that, that, that heart of yours. He confirms it, and then that's the danger. That's the Rubicon. That's the point of no return. And at that time, verse 21, Joshua came and he cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron and from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities, and none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. I want you to underline that 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 verse. And here's why. Notice what happened here. None of the Anakim were left in the land. Anakim were these giants. They were descendants of the Nephilim. Back in Genesis chapter 6, we don't have time to go into all these places, but if you want a lot of scripture, i got it for you. But if you go into Genesis chapter 6, the first four verses, it talks about these giants in the land before the flood. And also they were there after the flood. Uh, Evidently there was uh, another breed of giants that came up even after the flood. But notice the Anakim, who was this race of giants, they were left in the land of the children of Israel, and they remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, Underline those three cities, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Now fast forward about four hundred and twenty five years. Let me read to you something just for the sake of time. Write this scripture down, first Samuel chapter seventeen, verses one through four we're gonna look at. Remember, going forward now in time, four hundred and twenty five years, what is the problem with Saul and David? What were the, the enemies that were plaguing Saul and David? It was the Philistines, and specifically a giant named Goliath. <laughs> Let me read it to you. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and they were gathered at Socol, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped between Soko and Azekah in Dammon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah. We go to the valley of Elah when we go to Israel, when we go in march. You're going to go to that very valley, and you're going to see exactly where this battle took place. It's quite interesting to stand in that valley and look around the the two mountains on each side to think this is where it all came down. It's pretty exciting. But they went to the valley of Elah. They drew up the battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines. His name was Goliath from Gath. Remember that town that I had you circle in verse 22? He came from Gath. Where, where where do you think this he came from? It's because they didn't finish the job in Joshua. Now, here's the thing. We'll, we'll, we'll look into this in just a minute, so bear with me. So, now, because of what didn't happen 425 years earlier, now you've got these giants back in the land, and now Goliath is the giant uh, who is, in, you know, representing the Philistines, and certainly he has family. This large man—he was over nine and a nine and a half feet tall. Some people say as high as twelve feet tall. He was a giant, a race of giants. And could it be that they didn't? because they didn't finish the job, because the Israelites, when they inhabited the land, they didn't finish the job. We're going to get into that. But no, let's go on to verse 22. We'll come back to that in a minute. But it says, none of the Anakim were left in the land. The Anakim were these, uh, their name literally means long neck. They were a tribe of giants. They were descendants of Anak. And Anak was a giant himself. He was the progenitor of this giant. This this tribe of people, this giant people in the land of Canaan, and in fact, in if, if we were to look at um, again, this is just very brief here. Uh, if we were to look at Goliath, who we saw who was uh, uh, from Gath, we see that uh, the the foundation of these giants goes all the way back to Genesis chapter six verse four, where it talks about there were giants in the land, and the giant means Nephilim; these are the fallen ones. And it's also recorded for us in Numbers 13, verse 33. And it also goes on and tells us that uh, Arba was actually the father of Anak, this progenitor of people. And the people that were born from, these, from A- Anak were called Anakim. Because whenever you put I-M at the, at, at the end of any, any name, it means plural. So Anakim. And Goliath very well could have come from this race of giants. There were a, a couple of different races of giants that could have come from the Nephilim or could have come from Arba because there's nothing really solid about where they branched off. Uh, but there were different giants that the Bible talks about, the Avim, the Rephaim, the Zamzumim, the Emim, all of these different races of giants. And at some point, Goliath came into that, into that line because he was of the race of giants race of giants, but because Israel did not continue and fight against. And I would encourage you to read uh, Numbers 13, verses 21 through 33. It talks about the, the, the descendants. Now I'll just read verse 33 for you. It was when the spies went into, when Moses sent the spies early on into the promised land, It says that when they saw the giants, and the the word there is Nephilim, literally, these were the descendants of Anak, come from the giants. It says, we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, so we were in their sight. And so this Anak came from the giants, or these Nephilim. And um, you can look at Joshua chapter 15, too, and it tells us that Arba, who was a very well-renowned giant, uh, very important giant. He was actually the father of Anak. And so you can, you can see, you can put together somewhat of a, a skeleton of the, some of these, geneal, a genealogy of some of these giants. But I want you to notice something, the consequence of not following through. You see, as a result, Saul and David had to deal with this problem over 400 years later Because Joshua. Now it's interesting because God doesn't say that they they only did part of the job. He 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 accomplished everything that was necessary. But here's the thing: the the people who were mainly at fault were those who inherited the land after these battles had uh, that failed to finish the campaign against those remaining Canaanites. You've got to understand that the really big cities were taken care of. Those are the ones that God brought them in, and there was complete annihilation. Now you just had these small pockets of people, which were really shouldn't have been a real problem, so that when the children of Israel finally did partition the land and they got into their inheritance, they were supposed to drive those stragglers out or kill them, right? That was the intention, but what happened? What does history tell us? They didn't drive them out. They didn't drive them out. Instead, they made leagues with them. They intermarried with them. They made friends with them, and they thought, well, they're not so bad. Well, they might not have been so bad, but God's decision to have them destroyed was something he wanted you to do. See, when we start thinking better than God, that's where we get into the problem. And it's hard. It really is hard. And see, this is the result of not dealing with even sin in our own lives. See, we we, we let it go, we let it go, and what happens? It comes back to bite us. We, We are not to coddle and love our sin. We are to crucify it. What does Romans 8 tell us? See, we can learn some of these lessons. The Bible says that these things are written for our nurture, for our admonition, for our instruction. They're written there for a reason, so that we can learn from these mistakes that the Israelites made. Because whoever that people group would be, It could have been the Italians, it could have been the Irish, it could have been the Germans, it could even have been the Italians, probably not, but um, it could have been any people group. They would have all done the same thing. They would have all faltered at some point. If Adam and Eve hadn't have sinned, certainly Cain and Abel would have sinned. Actually, Adam and Eve, it wouldn't have been long before they were confronted with something else and they would have fallen into sin. But what does it say in Romans? Romans. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're to crucify those old things. If we don't take care of them now, we are going to suffer in the future. That's always the way sin works. We can either deal with it now, and and, and it's going to be difficult. But if you deal with it now, the dividends of that is going to spare you a great deal of pain and heartache down the road because once you let it go, all of a sudden more people get involved, there's a greater majority of people getting hurt, and your sin is becoming more and more a part of you, so much so that it becomes harder and harder. You become like Pharaoh where your heart gets so hard against the conviction of the Spirit of God that there comes a point where you don't want to do it anymore. You just say, fine, you know, I enjoy this too much. I've been doing this for so long, and you know, I, I've been convicted so much that now my heart is seared. Do you know what that means? It means that it's like a steak on a grill. Sorry to use a steak, but it's the only thing I can think of. That thing is nice and juicy, and you put that thing on a high grill when it's on high, and what does it do? It seals the juices. It seals it. That's what it does. When you've got that sinful heart, you want that to come out. You don't need it to be seared. Once you're seared, that stuff just stays inside of you, and it's like a cancer. And it just continues and continues until your life is completely shipwrecked. And like we talked about last Sunday, you might have a, uh, having a sin unto death. You may be involved in sins unto death or sins not unto death that maybe just is going to take a little time. But you may be involved in heinous things where God has to put an end to your life to save the Spirit. To save your soul before you go any further. These things happen. It's pretty scary. That's why we should never play, be footloose and fancy with sin. As soon as it be, you become aware of it, you need to crucify it. You need to turn from it. What does it say in Colossians chapter 3? Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. You are also to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another. But then in verse 10 he says, Now put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what, what color your skin is. We have to put off things and put things on. We have to take a serious look at those things. And, and, and it's very relatable to what we just read and in, in, in here in Joshua.
0: I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Joshua. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140.